Well, good morning, church. It is an honor and a privilege to get to open the Word of God with you this morning. We're picking up in a series, if this is your first time with us, from 1 Peter. Um, and we've called this Living for What Lasts. Because we know the only thing that lasts is the kingdom of God. And we want to be about the work of the kingdom. So if you will, open to 1 Peter uh, 2, 9. And all we're doing is verse 9 today. So just be mentally ready for that. <laughs> so if you will, bow your heads and we're going to pray and ask the Lord's blessing on this time. God, we're all coming in with things that are heavy, things that make us happy, things that are distractions. God, I just pray right now that as we're riding up and down the valleys of life, Lord, that you would give us respite as we look in your word and we worship you. Lord, speak to our hearts. Lord, we pray that we would be a people about your kingdom purpose. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> have you ever been in what you would consider an identity crisis? And it's generally an identity crisis starts with a question like, who am I? What, do, what am I to do with my life? There was a few major junctions in life where you see this crisis. A lot of times it's like that junior high kid going into high school. You know, you see them try out becoming a skateboarder or going emo or like they've never played sports before, but now they're going to be a jog. They're, they're trying to find an identity around something. Um, it's, I know I had one making that transition from high school to college to high school to the world. What am I going to do? Who am I going to be? Uh, many people that happens around job change, maybe a layoff or maybe uh, a new baby or in their 40s and 50s and this sounded a lot further away a while back but we call that the midlife crisis right or you know you another major junction is becoming empty nesters we fall into identity crisis when we feel that we've lost our way or we feel we have no way at all I know for me, two of the major identity crises in my life happened this way. The first one was, um, it's silly, but it was real for me. As a high school athlete, I built my whole identity around what I did. And when I received a, a scholarship to play college football, it just, it just even solidified that being a part of me even more. At the same time, I felt... God's call on my life distinctly to go into ministry. And the year I tried to play college football, it was just filled with misery. The game didn't change, but the game I loved, all of a sudden I hated it. it there, nothing changed about it. I couldn't stay healthy. I went to two schools. I had multiple injuries. I actually quit my first semester, and I felt like that's what I needed to do but I was actually too scared to actually pursue what I felt called to do. Like I told you last week, partial obedience is disobedience. So I, I quit, but then I didn't pursue what I felt like God was calling me to do. So that spring, I took another scholarship to go play at a little school in Arkansas. 
I felt led to get, a, to get educated for ministry, but my identity was so wrapped up in a sport that if I was very honest, I was at best average at, and I was pursuing that instead of what I felt like was a clear leading of the Lord. The scholarship that I received that I had so much pride in was very little money, if, if we looked at it. Uh, it was barely the price of books, but to me, to give that up and to do what I felt like the Lord was leading me to do, felt like I was giving up a part of who I was. At, I was at a crossroads. I was emotionally in a crisis because, like I said, it felt like part of me. Felt like I was going to lose something about me. But stepping out and following Jesus, I didn't lose any part of me. And I can tell you that instead, following in obedience, I would say I feel like I, maybe I found something about me that I wouldn't have had I pursued in that same, in that same trajectory. Another major crisis for me came after a, a bad ministry assignment. All right, God. You're calling me to do this thing. I left that, started doing this. Now, now I'm stepping out into to, to this role. It was uh, my first full-time role in ministry. I was a youth pastor at this church in Carthage. And as we were moving down there, so I'm newly married. We're moving down there, and I just felt like it was a, what I like to call a poo tornado. A poo tornado. You heard me right. And at the same time, I, 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 had, I had mentors say, dude, I'd get out of that. But I felt the Spirit say, hey, I got you. I'm, I'm going to take care of you. So we, we pursued it, and my inclination was right. It was, in fact, a poo tornado. <laughs> we came on a 98% vote, and nobody told me the only no votes in the church were the pastor and his family. Um, there was a litany of issues, but I eventually resigned over what I felt like were many ethical issues being ignored. And for years, I just felt like I was floundering. God, I'm, I'm following you, I think. I felt like I made the, the choice you were leading me to make. Why am I working multiple part-time jobs? Finally found a good job. Why did I get laid off? Uh, God, why? I felt like something in my, because of my work situation, I felt like I had a, a crisis of identity. And the problem was I was building up who I was and what I did instead of in Jesus Christ. Identity crisis come when we're struggling with the question, who, I, who am I? And I think Americans, we feel it differently because we connect who I am with what do I do and what do I accomplish. Your identity is not based on your ethnicity. It's not based on your background, your work experience, your marital status, your political or social agenda. Your identity is in Christ. Your identity is that you are redeemed and everything about you should flow then from being redeemed. Paul Cedar wrote this, 
The key to good self-image is found in the image of what we are in Christ. Notice that wasn't connected to anything we do. I love the book of 1 Peter because God is defining over and over and over again who we are. And we don't have to look to the world to find our identity. We don't have to look to what we do to find identity because in the sacred pages of Scripture, God is unfolding this identity for us. And then knowing who you are will drive what you do. So let's look at the what is true statement for the day. And this is driven from our text. In Christ, we are a new creation and given a new identity as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people of God's own possession. So what do we do from because of that? What is our purpose? To proclaim the excellencies of God. Read with me first Peter 2:9. But you are a chosen race. Church, that's for you. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. In 1 Peter, there's a lot to say about what we are to do as believers, but I think the emphasis in the book is on who you are in Christ, not what you do. But with the emphasis of being, uh, with the emphasis being on who you are, that's it's going to push what you are to do. It's to drive what you are to do. Living in this new identity gives us four ways that we've been set apart. The first way as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people of his own possession. So we're going to look at each one of these things. So let's look at chosen race. What is this new race that Peter's talking about? Well, he's already told us a little bit that we are a, a call, we're called out exiles. Peter told us in chapter one, we're to, to relate to the world as aliens, resident aliens, as, as called out exiles. Because we are not of the race of this world any longer. We are a new creation. We are a new race. We're the church. We're different than everything else. We rejoice and celebrate because of what God has called us to be, not because of what God has called us to do. Even though we can be thankful and excited about what we're to do in Christ, the real gift is that we are a chosen race of God. It's crazy I can go anywhere in the world. I've been to India. I've been to the islands off of Asia. I've been to South America. And I have more in common with someone that I speak to through an interpreter than the very people I graduated high school with. Because we are bonded in the spirit. 
And I just want to take a pause and talk about this issue. Since we're talking about race, I want to talk about the issue of racism. And, I mean, look around. This is a bunch of white people in a room. So you realize Jesus wasn't a white dude, right? Like, he was a first century Jew. He was a first century Middle Easterner. To be racist is to say, I believe people who have a different culture, I believe the people who have a different nationality or skin pigment than I do to be less than me. So let's follow that logic out. If, if, if that's something you struggle with, I don't want to talk down to you, but I want to follow that logic out. That means you believe you're better than Jesus Christ himself, who had a different pigment, different ethnicity, different culture than you do. Also, racism, racism is ignorant because there is only one created race. We all come from the same family tree. Matter of fact, our tree didn't fork uh, too many times in particular places in the Bible. Adam and then uh, Noah. We, we all come from the same trunk. In Christ, the Bible tells us we are now a new creation that does not start with the first race, Adam. Instead, Romans 5 tells us that the second Adam has come. This is Jesus Christ. And when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are something else. We are made a new creation. We are given a new spirit. The spirit of God dwells inside of us. This new race that he's making, it's beautiful. It's composed of all sorts of languages and nationalities and skin pigments. And think about this. It was Middle Easterners who took the gospel message first to white people, the Romans. And it was the Romans, the white guys, and the Middle Easterners who first tried to squash the movement. I haven't felt any of this since I've been here. I haven't heard any offhanded comments. But I know this is something some people deal with. At my first ministry assignment I was at, the, the, the conflict that eventually led to my resignation was over the church becoming uncomfortable and there being issues with having more African-American children at VBS than their own children, then eventually more African-Americans in the Sunday morning service than, than uh, were the members. <coughs> Operating this way is not of God. It's sinful. H.B. Charles, if you've never heard of him, he's uh, one of my preacher man crushes. Uh, he's an African-American pastor who told his African-American congregation this. So we're, I, I don't want you to feel like I'm beating you up. I think every ethnicity struggles with this to some degree. He tells them this, 1 Peter 1.23 says, You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of an imperishable seed, through the living and abiding word of God. 
He, he goes on to say, being a chosen race does not erase your racial identity. It transcends your racial identity. And if your racial identity is more important to you than your Christian identity, you do not understand what it means to be a Christian. I don't want to make this a bigger deal than it is, but it is a real struggle for some people. Peter, the guy who wrote this book, I mean, poor Peter, his dirty laundry just has been aired for generations. We see in the book of Galatians, he struggles with this, wanting these new Gentile converts to, to look, walk, and talk like his culture. You see, you see in the book of Galatians, Paul rebuking him over this. You see in the book of Acts, way early on, God is calling Peter to go to him and stay the night with him. And Peter is like pushing back because he's, he, that would make him in his mind unclean. So if you're here and you're struggling with these things, you're not alone, but it's not okay to stay there. Hear the rebuke of the Lord, repent and move on. That's what we see in the model of Peter. He repented and he moved on and God did mighty things as he went through the Roman Empire sharing the gospel with people who were different than him. Our nature is that we would find things to make us feel better about ourselves and to create, create identities where we're better than others. I mean, your sports teams. Like if you're an Aggie, how did you feel about that Texas win last night? We just want to do things to feel better about ourselves. It's okay, but we have to, when it comes to, to, to our racial identity and our identity in Christ, we, in this new race, this chosen race, we are to fight against the passions of the flesh. In Christ, we are given a new race with a new identity, and it's to proclaim the excellencies of the glory of God to all people. And this is how we advance the kingdom. So let's look now at a royal priesthood. That's the next piece of this, this new identity that we have in Christ. Last week, we talked extensively about the priesthood. Some of you are like, yeah, we did. We're not going to go take that deep dive. Go listen to last week's sermons. It's online on Facebook and Spotify and Apple. Brandon puts it in all the places. If you're interested, go listen. But here's a quick recap. The only people who could be priests were the Levites. So, uh, you know, there were 12 sons of Israel, 12 tribes of Israel, and one of the tribes were set apart and that was the tribe of Levi to specifically serve in the tabernacle and to specifically serve in the temple. And they were the ones, nobody else, they offered the sacrifices and they interceded uh, on behalf of the nation and they served God in the temple. They were designated to do this thing. As a Levite, you were literally born into the priesthood and from birth, this responsibility was part of the fabric, part of the makeup of who you are and what you were to do with your life. As Christians, that, that old priesthood has gone away. 
The Levitical priesthood has gone away. And as Christians, at your new birth, you are born into this new priesthood. Serving the Lord is to be part of the fabric of who you are. So if you were taking a little mental inventory of who you are and what makes you do what you do, if one of the core things about you isn't serving the Lord, you're not walking in this biblical identity. 1 Peter 2, 5 says, this is what we looked at last week, you yourselves, like living stones, are to be built up as spiritual houses, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Israel had a priesthood. As the church, we are the priesthood. Sometimes in the church, we make the pastor the priesthood. When we do that, we're collectively rejecting our call. We are all to be the priests. More than that, we are a royal priesthood. So how do you become royal? How do you get in a royal lineage? There's two ways, by birth or by conquest. First Peter 2, uh, 23 says this, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. You are born into the royal lineage of God. In Christ, we are sons and daughters of the King. In Christ, we get to call out to God, Father. In Christ, when we go to heaven, we will reign as co-heirs in the kingdom. We're not going as servants, but as co-heirs. Read Revelation, read, read Ephesians. We're by birth in this royal lineage of God. Not only that, but we're also by conquest. Because of the conquest of Jesus over sin and death, we are redeemed into this royal lineage of God the Father. Is there a priesthood, a royal priesthood in the Bible? Because the Levitical priesthood is not a royal priesthood. No kings came out of that. Kings came out of Judah. Where, where, where would we find a royal priesthood? Without going down a crazy rabbit hole, there are two references to it in the, New Test or in the Bible. A guy named Melchizedek and Jesus. We meet Melchizedek. He's probably one of my favorite figures in the Bible because he's so interesting. Um, Aubrey got caught in my office talking about that for like two hours the other day. I'm just going to say my bad. Uh, Melchizedek, um, we find him in Genesis. And after Abraham's coming back from a war, he meets this, this character, Melchizedek, in Genesis 14. And Abraham gives him a tenth of all the spoils of the war. And, and they, uh, Melchizedek gives him bread and wine and, and offers him a blessing. We're told that Melchizedek there is the king. He's a, a king and a priest. 
So this is a royal priesthood. And it tells us he's king of Salem. Salem means peace. The, the book of Hebrews tells us more about him. So look at uh, the screens. Hebrews 7, 1. From this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Who in the Bible is the king of righteousness? And then he also took, uh, he is also the king of Salem. That is the king of peace. Who in the Bible is the king of peace and the king of righteousness? Let's see what else we have to learn about him. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues to be a priest forever. Let's do a quick recap on this guy. He's king of righteousness. He's king of peace, and he's the priest of the Most High God. I believe, now other, there are many other beliefs about this man. I believe that this is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Melchizedek serves the Lord forever. Melchizedek had no genealogy, no beginning of days, nor end of days. Also, let's think about this. If this was not the case, how could Jesus go into the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifice? He's not a Levite. He's from the tribe of Judah. Also, when, when did Levi even come about? Abraham, who uh, Jesus is talking to, or uh, who Melchizedek is talking to, is the great-grandfather of Levi, the father of the Levites, who would not come after his birth. It was 400 years till there was a priesthood. Levi also had no king from his lineage. If you read further into Hebrews, you'll find that Jesus is not, it's very specific, not of the order of Levi. It's very specific that he's of this different order, this different kind of priest, this priesthood of Melchizedek, a kingly priesthood. The author of Hebrews tells us that it is a greater priesthood, and that's why Jesus being both our great king and great high priest, is able to go into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice once for all. The priest wasn't to sit down in the Holy of Holies, but we see Jesus, after he offers that sacrifice once and for all, he takes a seat because the work is finished. It's done. It's a greater priesthood than what we're given in the Old Testament. And we are in this royal lineage of priests. We're not in the order of, of Levi, but we're in the order of Christ. We are a royal priesthood in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And into eternity, we will be living in this new identity. Look at Revelations 5.8. We look at Revelation because we're looking at the things to come in the last days. And when he took, when he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, 
which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang new songs, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Into eternity, we will be reigning in this new Jerusalem, serving God as this new priesthood. Your new, your new identity in Christ is a chosen race and a royal priesthood. Let's keep looking. Next, let's see that we're a holy nation. Holy means to be set apart. We are a holy nation of people. We're scattered as the church across continents and cultures and times. The church from Acts until now is one people united in faith by Christ and the Holy Spirit. We in Christ are a holy nation to be about the purpose of the kingdom of God. Holy means to be set apart, and we are set apart to be different than the nations of the world. We are set apart to be different than the nation that we live in. We are to be holy like God is holy, and we are to be ambassadors of his glory by the way that we live. This word for nation is ethne. It's where we get the word ethnicity. We are a new ethne. We are a new ethnicity. We are a new culture in Christ. This new creation work is that he does is to change everything about you, your race, your, your ethnicity, the aim and the purpose of your life should be about him. 1 Peter 1, 14 says this, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passion of your former ignorances. But as he who called you holy is holy, also be holy in all your conducts. And it, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And just like we paused and talked about something else, I feel like this is a okay place to pause and talk about this. I want to challenge your, your, your nationalistic fervor. I think it's good in balance. So let me say that, all things in balance. But here's my question. Are you prouder to be an American than you are to be a Christian? Are you prouder to be an American than you are to be a Christian? It's okay to be proud of something. It's okay to be proud to be a Texan, an American, and a fan of the Cowboys, whatever it is. But when it's placed over your pride in being a believer, that's the issue. And take... Take a page from, from the church in Revelation, the church of Ephesus. So the church in Ephesus, just a real quick background, that Paul planted the church. John the Revelator pastored the church until he was placed on the Isle of Patmos. So this, this church 
had the rock stars of the early church leading it, right? By the time he had his vision in Revelation and Jesus spoke to the seven churches, one of the seven churches he spoke to was the church at Ephesus. And I think cultural Christians might need to hear this word. He says, I, I commend you for this. For, for hating what I hate. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans. I think for us, sometimes we get confused with the, the things of God, like the, the ethics that God would be for, and we, we, we put it into this political party, and we think that everything that, that's not for this party, we get more about this, passionate about this party because of the things that they're voting for than we do about our first love, Jesus. I have this against you that you, or I, I, I have this for you that you hated the work of the Nicolaitans. I think God might be looking at the Church of America going, I have this for you. You hate the work of abortion. I have this for you. You hate the work of, of whatever. That's good. But I have this against you that you've substituted your passion for these political things that are good for being passionate about your first love. He says, I have this against you that you've forsaken your first love. I have this against you that you've forsaken your first passion. Are you more passionate about your political agenda or are you more passionate about the purposes of Jesus Christ? Do people, when they meet you, know more about what side of the aisle you stand on than they do your faith? Would people identify you by your faith or by your politics? And don't get me wrong, I'm a political dude. Like, I'm watching the stuff, I'm listening to stuff, I'm getting mad reading Twitter. All things in balance. And that thing has to be balanced behind our new identity in Christ. Our new identity in Christ, we should never walk away from our first love. And our passion should be about his purposes. And then all these other things that drive our voting should be driven from gospel ethics. And that's great that you found something you believe is doing that. But that should never be on top of our passion for spreading the purpose and the cause of Christ. In our new identity, we are a chosen race, a new race born out of an imperishable seed, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation to live as ambassadors, not of this kingdom that we live in now, but of this new kingdom as ambassadors of this new citizenship, the citizenship of heaven. And finally, let's look at a people for his own possession. We are a special kind of people. The church is a special kind of people. Not only are we priests, not only are we a chosen race, we are his people for his own possession. Now, possession is one of these words that makes us feel uncomfortable. Um, and this week, 
I was thinking, you know, maybe possession doesn't think I, what I think it means, so I looked it up. Possession means what you think it means. Property. We are his. But when you think about this, the wealth of nations isn't about its commodities, but about its people. Right? The wealth of a nation isn't about the commodities, but the people. We are a valuable, some translations call us a prized possession. And how do you know how valuable you are? Think about the cost of acquiring you. The cost to redeem you, that's the church word for buy. The cost to redeem you, the cost to buy you, was the blood of the Son of God poured out. That's how valuable you are. God redeemed us and he bought us for himself. He purchased us so that we did not have to go and face the torment of hell. Now, some people just think salvation, the purpose of salvation is so you don't have to go to hell. No, salvation, the purpose of salvation is that we are a people for his own possession. He redeemed us for himself. He loved us, and for some reason he wanted us, and he saved us for relationship. He saved us for his glory, and we are to be his possession that he has purchased and pardoned for himself and no one else. Us being his possession has been his desire since before the beginning. We've already learned this. Let's look uh, back at 1 Peter 1.20. Talking about Jesus. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest, was made known in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are now in God. God has desired since before he ever formed the earth for this people to be his possession. Look at how God is yearning and calling to it over the years, starting in Genesis in the first book. He says in 1717, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be to you God and to your descendants after you. Jeremiah 32, 38 says, they shall be my people and I will be their God. Ezekiel 37, 23 and this is as the ages go on, says this, I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they've sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. Leviticus 26, 12, going back in time. And I will also walk among you, and you will be, and, and, and be your God, and you shall be my people. Jeremiah eleven fourteen. 14, this is, all these things are looking towards the new covenant. He says this, and I will, I will walk, uh, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 11, 4. Listen to my voice and do according to all that I command you. So you shall be my people and I will be your God. Jeremiah 30, 22. You shall be my people and I will be your God. Ezekiel 36, 26, or 28. You will live in the land that I have given your forefathers so that you will be my people and I will be your God. I was reading Hosea this week and he was looking forward to this new covenant. And guess what he says? 
and I will be your people, or I will be your God, and you will be my people. From age to age, God has been crying out to this people saying, my desire is when all things are made, made done, is that I would dwell with you, and you would be my people, my possession, and I will be to you your God. The joy of eternity is this, that God's dwelling place is with men, and we get to be in his presence unhindered. The, God, the heart of God is that he would have a people who love them as, his, as their God, and that he would receive glory from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And everything is building in the Bible to this moment when this thing is actualized. People think that the tomb is the climax, that the cross is the climax, that the resurrection is the climax of the Bible. It's not. The climax of the Bible happens in Revelation 21.3, and this is what happens. The new heaven and the new earth come down, and God is sitting on his throne, and he says this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be there as their God. That's what all things are building to, that we get to operate in this new identity as a, 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 a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people of his own possession. God has saved you for himself. You are his prized possession. And if you're, especially these young guys, if you're ever sitting here going, I feel unknown, I feel unworthy, I feel unloved. How much more important could you possibly be than this, that the God of eternity for ages has been yearning for you to be his prized possession. You are in Christ known. You are in Christ loved. And you in Christ have a purpose. All the things that we find identity in will ultimately be destroyed because none of it will pass through the fire. We, we talk about the first great white throne of judgment. There's another judgment coming, and it's the judgment of all of our works and ourselves passing through this fire of judgment. It's a different throne. 1 Corinthians 3.21 tells us this. There's not a different throne, a different judgment. Now, if anyone builds on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's works will become Manifest That means made known, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and fire will test what sorts of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. This is talking about in heaven. We get some other rewards and blessings based on the work that we've done in our lives. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through the fire. Status will be destroyed. Wealth will be destroyed. Popularity will be destroyed. Money will be destroyed. None of those things will, will make it through that fire. The only things that make it through the fire are the things that we've done for the kingdom. When, when we leave this place as the church scattered, whether you're at the baseball park or at your place of business or 
shopping in the grocery store or in your living room, those things that you've done that, that build the kingdom as, as the royal priesthood, because God's not calling everybody to be a preacher. He's calling everybody to the priesthood. And those things that you do will pass through the fire, but everything else you'll suffer loss on. You are loved and you have worth. God is not just excited about you, but those who will come to, to him through you. Let's look at this last piece very quickly to proclaim his excellencies. It's, this is a statement of purpose here. This is why we're given a new identity that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. The word is evangelion, to proclaim. That, that's this word we get evangelism, to, to share the good news, to go, to go before and announce. They would send one, when the Romans would defeat a city and they would go back into the empire, they would send one before him to proclaim, to evangelion, the good news that Rome had won. We are serving a conquering king who is coming, and he sent us to declare before him the evangelion, the good news, that the king is coming, and the king is coming soon, and we are to proclaim it to every tribe, tongue, and nation. We are to proclaim it where we live, where we work, and where we play. And every one of us has this call. So let me give you two practical ways to get involved in it. First, you'll see in the lobby a thing called Who's Your One. What Who's Your One is, we're going to ask you to take one of those orange balls that are in that tray and to pull it out and to write somebody's name on it that's either far from God or doesn't know God. Maybe they're a believer who's walked, that's just for some reason they're out of church or write that name on it and, and you're saying, I'm identifying this person and I'm going to pray for them every day until they come either come to know the Lord or come to church. But you're not, just, you're not just identifying, you're investing. You're investing that time in prayer, but also that if you grab that ball, you're going to invest in putting time into their life, whether it starts off with a couple text messages, like, hey, thinking about you, hey, you want to grab some coffee? Hey, whatever. And then it's investing in their life, knowing their kids, knowing their family, knowing what's going on with them. But it can't stop there. I mean, everybody needs a friend, but more, they are going to hell, right? If they don't know Jesus. It's inviting them to church if you don't feel equipped to share the gospel, because I can promise you, you've already heard the gospel like 12 times since you sit in your seat today. They're going to hear the gospel if they come here. Or you personally invite them to know Jesus. And once you do that, take a, one of those green balls and write their name in there and th throw it in the box. And I know a lot of people haven't kept doing it, but I want to encourage you for those invites that you give and do this, because you'll notice 33 um, blue ping pong balls in that, in that box out there. Those 33 balls represent life transformation. Those 33 balls are people that we've baptized this year. And you'll notice that there's about this many orange balls, about that many green balls, and about that many that are blue but it's life transformation. That's what the investment looks like. I mean, think about the, the, the way the church has grown. Look around. That's, that's what the investment looks like. But you have to start somewhere, and it starts with one. Now, maybe you're like, all right, I've invested, I've invited, but I'm ready to invite them to know Jesus myself. I want to I share with them. 
Well, we're starting community groups. Brandon, um, he can get you connected with different community group leaders. And we're starting right now teaching evangelism training called Three Circles. Equipping you to go and share the gospel. And if you're a community group leader, I don't know that we've shared this with you, but I'm just putting this challenge on you now. My, my request from you is that every week you would start the, the class, you would start the meeting with who's your one, going around the room and calling people to the carpet about who's the one person that God's calling them to share the gospel with. And then every week after that, calling them to account, how have you invested in them this week? And then if they feel equipped they can go. If not, that's why God's given us a community. Take somebody with you. He's given you the community group. And when we start going and taking the gospel, we'll see God do powerful things in our community. If you will, bow your heads with me.